Well, welcome to A Mission Driven You. This is a podcast for people who want to do well and do good in the world. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening to this, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so glad you get to hear this conversation today because I'm talking with a friend of mine, Joseph Myers, cool guy. We're going to be talking about building a culture of trust. And Joseph is a entrepreneur. He's a speaker. He's a writer. He's one of these sort of polymath type people. Uh, he runs a consulting firm that assists organizations and individuals to promote and develop healthy community and trust relationships. So it's like this, the, it's, the, it's the topic of the day right now, because we are in a time of with a great culture of distrust. He's written two great books, which I heartily recommend. I, I've read them both and love them, The Search to Belong in Organic Community. And his new book is called Trust Me, Discovering Trust in a Culture of Distrust. So, Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Will. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to see you. Great to connect. It is. Yeah, likewise. So here's a question that we always ask every guest, because this podcast started about interdependence and it's still very much about that. So I always ask every guest to tell us a story of someone or some group that made the difference for you. When you look back, you're like, yeah, they were my jam. The reason I was able to get where I am and do what I do is because of that person or that group. Who would that be for you? Well, I mean, it. you know, I'm sure this is with you and almost everyone to pick someone out right. or one group. You know, uh, it feels like the seasonal qualities of my life have had instrumental people and groups that have, have got me through that season and catapulted me into, and launched me into a next season kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But if there's one person, if you had to, you know, a gun to my head and said, you know, I'm going to pull the trigger. It's the person that I would say is my mentor or has been in my life. And it's Kenan Callahan. And okay. Kenan wrote several really great books specifically around the church growth movement. He is a person. And as we kind of journeyed together, he took me under his wing. And I think the biggest thing that helped me was to accept that it's what I call now my productive wrong, that when I mm. see life differently or see things differently than what people are proposing they really are, to be brave and just say it, just say, yeah. you know, yeah. just call bullshit on people and, and right. say, wait a minute, I, you know, I don't, I'm, it's not that I have, well, I do have a big ego, ego but it's not you know, don't be egotistical about it. Just say, listen, I, I'm not sure that's the way it is. And so when Search to Belong came, you know, that just flew right in the face of the small group movement. Right. And, you know, people actually got really angry over that book. And so, yeah. and, and now it's kind of accepted as, as one of the books for small groups. But yeah, I think it, it would definitely be him. He, he really helped me solidify that I, I have dyslexia. And so to be an author and to have it is <laughs> a joke in and of itself. Right. But I always call it my productive wrong. I, I don't see letters mis, like misplaced in words. I see words misplaced in sentences. Yeah. So I think an author has said, some, said something when I'm reading and they haven't said that at all. And I take off of that and create this whole new idea right. <laughs> based on something that was completely read wrong. Yeah. And he, he constantly said, that's, that's your right in the world is you're wrong is your right in the world. So yeah. 
I love that story. And thank you for sharing with it. And thanks for being transparent. So we're going to jump into the book in a second. But one of the things I loved about it, Joseph, was just how transparent and authentic and how willing to call your call your own call yourself on your own bullshit you were like the 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 book almost opens with you talking about your own bullshit which to me is a critical component of this idea of trust so let's dive in though let's talk about trust like just so we have a common vernacular here when you say trust you mean yeah so it's i i probably that's one of the things in the book that probably I know my developmental editor, it drove her nuts because she's like, you give like 10 definitions of trust in the book. I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. But if there's one definition that I really enjoy, at least for now, is uh, trust is a confident relationship with the unknown. Yeah. And it's a guided distrust of the known. Wow. Yeah. I love that. So let's walk through both of those because I had keyed in on the first one. The uh, trust is a confident relationship with the unknown, but not as much with the second definition. And I I do remember reading that now. So let's talk first about this uh, confident relationship with the unknown. What does that mean? And how do we find it? How do we get that relationship? Yeah. So here's, I mean, the basic premise uh, Rachel Botsman really is a phenomenal writer, and I think she's the trust expert somewhere in some university. Yeah. She yeah. just she's amazing, but she that's the, her definition is a trusted relationship with the unknown. Meaning, if you know something, you don't need trust at all. Mm, yeah, there, the trust has to have a risk to it. It has to. There's no other way to develop trust than with risk, which is an interesting thing when we start talking about later here, we'll talk about the trust flywheel. But you have to remember to decide to trust, you must have risk. It must have an unknown piece to it. If if it's known, there's no reason to trust. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I'll tell you what it flies in the face of is to me, I like the word confidence so much better than the word certainty, because you can be, you can have a sense of confidence, even though you don't know everything. And even though you're not certain, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Because if you are certain, there's no reason to trust. Right, right. It just eliminates the whole premise of what trust is. Right, right. You have to take a leap. And the unknown is out there that you're leaping into, and that's called trust. I love that. I love that. And what what can we know completely? Nothing. I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so, so what, go one, ahead. Of the, one of the things that, that um, is so interesting about um, people who now are trying to develop a trust culture, because everybody knows trust is the key. I mean, in every relationship, in every business, in every product, whatever you're doing, trust is the key. And so how do you develop that? Well, it must be if I become, quote unquote, more transparent, I'll be more trusted. Well, that's that's such an interesting thing, because if you know everything about me, well, there's no reason to trust me. You just know it. Right. It's not, it's no longer trust. It's no longer trust. It's something else. And so the more transparent I am, 
the more yeah. qualities that I'm giving that person, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And well, it, 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 transparency has more to do with distrust than with trust. Right. But you don't build trust upon transparency. Yeah. And you don't build trust on things like accountability. Accountability is another thing. You know, if, yeah. if, if you um, have some kind of accountability relationship with me, whatever that is, it's basically an unloving relationship with me. Because, you know, the scripture says, love keeps no record of wrong. Right. No, no account. There, so yeah. as soon as you start so, yeah, to, if you have to have accountability, right. Yeah, as, soon as, you, yeah. as soon as you start that, you've just eliminated love. Yeah. Well, same thing with trust is that the more accountable I am to you, the more instead of accountable to me, that's a whole right. nother. Yeah. But when I'm accountable to someone else, you are definitely not building trust. You're doing something else. And for me, that is you are mitigating distrust, but you're not literally building trust. Yeah. 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 And remind me again what you said about distrust, because that was really poignant as well as sort of the point counterpoint. What did you say about distrust earlier? In my definition? Yeah. Yeah. It's a guiding distrust of the known. That's that's like revolutionary. So I want you to unpack that more. A guiding distrust of the unknown. Talk about that. So um, trust, again, has to have this friction of risk. Right. So in its definition, it has to have something that is risky. Yeah. And that is that our, so let, let's, let's step just a little bit back and talk how the brain processes trust and distrust. Yeah, yeah. So please. I, I've, been, I've been thinking about this concept since the 80s, you know, back in the 1900s when some of us used to be young. And so what I kept seeing was that people trusted and distrusted at the exact same time. Hmm. And it was so intriguing to me. And so I kept trying to do research, but almost all the research, I mean, literally 99.9% .9 of the research said that the more you trusted, the less you distrusted or vice versa. It yeah. would put it but on sort of a spectrum. spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And I kept looking at it going, that can't be possible. Right. Well, about five years ago, neuroscience said, hey, listen, distrust comes from the amygdala. So the fight, flight or freeze part of our brain. Right. right. And trust comes from the prefrontal cortex, the executive <laughs> thought of our brain. Right. So it's literally in our brains, it's two, they are two separate concepts. They do not right. actually connect in the way we thought they did. Now, they, they yeah. do have influence over each other, and I'm not going to deny that. But when distrust is processed by our amygdala, now, just again, let me take one step back so we, I can start using some language. The, sure. The, the amygdala has two personalities, and I call them your guard dog and your guide dog. Yeah. And it, its primary purpose is to keep you safe, the amygdala. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, literally to keep you physically alive, you know. And so what it does, though, it does that in two different ways. As a protective shield, guard dog, barking, right. biting, that kind of thing. Or the amygdala can do it as a guide through risk. Yeah. Like a, a guide dog keeps you safe, right? It, it, it right. keeps you out of traffic or whatever it's trying to help you with. But it's not barking and biting. It doesn't have those right. qualities about it. Doesn't it doesn't need to. Right. 
because right. it it has a confident distrust of the known. Interesting. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's guiding you through the known so that you can actually take the leap. So your prefrontal cortex can take the leap, which by the way, your prefrontal cortex, all it wants to do is have a relationship. That's all it's trying to do. Right. Right. So it, all that executive thought and, and list that it prepares or and all those things it does, it's all to build relationships. Yeah. yeah. So your guide, guiding distrust, your guide dog in your amygdala allows that risk then for you to take the leap uh, into the unknown because it's back there going, I got your back. I get your sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I can guide you through this. Yeah. And by the way, if something happens where you actually need a guard dog to bark, I'm also here, you know? Right. And so yeah. you have to have that quality of a guided distrust to lead you into your decision to trust. So simply you decide to trust and you feel distrust. Yeah. That's really helpful for two reasons. And I'd love for you to reflect on these. First of all, I tend to think I've had this, I tend to have this perspective toward the amygdala as that old part of my brain that wants to make me afraid of everything. And I just need to sort of get the amygdala out of the way so I can do, so I can prefrontal cortex my way through life. But, but I love this guard dog versus guide dog approach. And so is, so let me ask, I'll ask this question first, which is that work we're doing, that guide dog work in the amygdala, it can be active. I mean, I guess what, when you were first describing the amygdala versus the prefrontal cortex, I was thinking about the amygdala as kind of a, almost a passive survivalist way, but you're saying my amygdala can, like, I can let it come out and play my amygdala <laughs> and yeah. I can still, I can still find my way into a healthy sense of trust. Right. And in fact, if you don't, uh, what you enter into is what people will call blind trust. Uh, you blindly start to trust things. Yeah. And take larger risk than you should because you don't have that amygdala guiding you right. through this. Right. Guiding you that. in this decision. Yeah. That's really, really helpful. So now the prefrontal cortex, though, is it is it true that the like in the in the executive part of our brain, we are choosing trust? Is that the right? Is that the right way to say it? Trust is a decision. OK. And it, it, one of the. One of the I just um, was talking to a friend actually right before this about self-trust and self-distrust. Yeah. And one of the keys is when in self-trust is to realize that we need to distrust ourselves differently. We we don't need to get rid of distrust. And that's the same with other people. We need to get them to distrust us differently and us to distrust them differently, meaning not as a guard dog, but as a guide dog. Interesting. And so it's not appropriate for us to try to eliminate distrust. That's not the goal. The goal is in transparency, the goal is to move that barking dog to a guide dog mentality just enough so I can take the leap in trust. I love that. So and transparency and accountability, those things mitigate distrust. They help you move. When I say mitigate, I mean, move from guard dog to guide dog. Okay. But they yeah. don't actually build trust because building trust takes risk. Interesting. So, so in essence, the one, 
kind of creates the condition where I can trust and the other takes the actions to show trust or to begin to build trust. Yeah. And those are relational things. So sure. it's, it's so interesting, like collaboration. It, collaboration is a risky part of business. I mean, it's a risky thing we do yeah. to collaborate, oh, yeah. right? And that risk allows me then to decide, hey, I can, I can start trusting. That, that's, yeah. that risk allows that to happen. The thing about it is because it's full of risk, we also know that our trust is going to be tested because mm. you have that risk right there. Yeah. So where we usually fall down is we will mitigate the distrust, we'll start to engage the trust, and then we'll be surprised when trust is tested. Right. And we're like, <laughs> what the heck? I, 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 I did all this work to get my barking dog to stop and then to engage yeah. trust and build this list why you should trust. And now you're testing it? Right. That part of the... What a, that's the trust flywheel is those three elements. And when you are able to, to mitigate that distrust again, when it's tested yeah. and, te- and then engage trust and then be prepared for it to be tested so that you can mitigate, engage. When you get that wheel moving with some momentum and velocity, yeah. now you have a trust culture. Yeah. And um, I really want to dig into the community concepts of it because I've, I've read your work on community and it's, and it's really powerful. But I want to start with self-trust. I, so I'll, I'll just kind of share from my own personal journey. A lot of times, you know, for people like myself who are in long-term recovery, a lot of times you hear stories like, I said I was going to get sober, but no one around me trusted me anymore. Right. What I realized myself is that when I came into sobriety, like the person who least trusted me was me. <laughs> like I just, didn't, I thought I was full of shit. And so like, I'd love to start with this idea of self-trust. Like what, what does that look like? And what are the practices or the disciplines of building self-trust? Yeah, that's so well said. And not, you probably don't know this part of my story, but I've worked with addictive forms of behavior since I was about 10. Yeah. So it's, it's a part of my life. I know exactly, you know, what people are going through. And what I've learned is, yes, it's all about self-distrust. Mm. And that barking dog that leads you to shame. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just, just badgers and bites and nibbles and won't shut up, you know. Right. And right. and you carry it around like a, a purse dog and it just keeps <laughs> barking and barking and barking and barking, right? Yeah. But what I've learned, let me just say one of the most dynamic things that you can ever say to someone, and whether they have an addiction or not, is, um, and what you can say to yourself is hardly ever say to yourself, I need to stop. Mm-hmm. Now, what that does to just, just imagine going up to a fence where there's a guard dog and they're biting and biting, biting. And I yell from the other side of the fence, stop it, stop it, stop it. I have a neighbor whose dog barks all the time. And they have this argument as soon as he gets home from work until midnight. I mean, just a constant, stop it, stop it, stop it. Well, that's exactly the way our our guard dog reacts inside of our head. Yeah. Instead, Ken and Callahan, who I mentioned before, had this beautiful thing he said to me one time. He said, the next time you feel like 
blank, take one hour and just wait. Now, what he did was he moved my barking dog, guard dog, to a guided. He didn't say, I want you to get rid of that dog. Right. So what I want you to do is I want you to teach it. I want you to socialize it. I want you to. And so by waiting an hour, now I have the ability. Now I know that I have control over that dog. Yeah. Yeah. I can get them to a better, healthy place. Yeah. And so if I just wait. Love that. So now with my guard, my guide dog in place, sorry. Yeah. I can begin to build a relationship with myself and that will build trust, which is a risky business. Building trust with yourself is. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Well, building a relationship with yourself, which is really what I would call trusting yourself. Right. Is a risky business. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. I'll tell you what it makes me think of is um, I've been doing some work researching for a writing project I'm involved in on internal family systems therapy. This mm-hmm. idea that we have multiple parts within us. And Dick Schwartz, who founded IFS, would say, don't try to tell those parts to be quiet. Instead, ask them what they have to say to you. Like what, what you know, and I love, I love this approach because you know, not just as somebody who has dealt with addiction, addiction issues, but as somebody who has been trying to figure out how to be a better person my whole life, right. like this idea of beating myself up didn't work. It, it, it led to chaos. Exactly. And, you know, it, exactly what you just said, the person I was just talking to, one of the things that she's been told all of her life is yeah. that she needs to focus on one thing. She has too many things she focuses on. Right. And I said, no, what I want you to do is go collaborate with all those voices and all those things that you do and bring them together as one big choir and sing, you know, don't try to sing a solo here. Right. Yeah. This is a choral piece. Your life is a choir. So go do all those. And I mean, just tears just flowed, you know, because when you give permission for people to take the risk to have a relationship with their whole self. Right. Right. Not just pieces of it. Have a relationship with your whole self. Listen to your whole self and then go live. Just live. Yeah. 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 And over time, we learn to trust ourselves, right? We we call it intuition, whatever we want, but it's just we we tend to have confidence, not certainty, but confidence in what we tell ourselves over time as we learn self-trust. That's exactly right. When that barking dog starts again, you just say, Hey, wait a minute, because it, you need that barking dog sometimes to save you from sure. yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. And so if it starts to bark, you just say, hey, wait a minute, maybe I need to pay attention to this, or is it really barking because it just needs attention and I need to move it to a guide dog and wait right. wait an hour and see what happens? Yeah. Now, what do we do? I'm going to move now from the individual to the group or the community. What do we do when we got a bunch of dogs barking at each other we're my dog's barking at me and I'm barking at you and you're you know we got a cacophony of barking dogs how does that work and I, I want to ask more specific questions but I just want to sort of tee up the subject like what does trust look like when we're in groups and in communities because that's where a lot of your expertise lies yeah and so one of the one of the things we did with search to belong is search said hey uh, Person wants to belong in four spatial references. 
Public, right. social, personal, and intimate space. Yeah. I stole yeah. those from Edward Hall and right. his studies and proxemics, right? And he said, Edward was all about, hey, we want to communicate in this way. And my thought was, well, if you want to communicate that way, is that the way we want to belong to each other? Yeah. And so the interesting thing then came when I started, when I continued the work with trust, is that trust has different personalities and different risks that it takes depending on the context that it's in. Context trumps everything when it comes to trust. Okay. So for instance, um, there's three ways that we measure trust in our head. One is de depth. Right. Now that, that container can be really, really small and you can have a really high sense of trust as far as height, like when you step into an Uber card, you know, you're, you're with a stranger, they have your life in your hand, all of a right. sudden you have this high level of trust, but just a really small container. Right, right. Second is volume. So volume happens over time. In fact, when people say it takes a long time to trust someone, no, it doesn't. It takes about a split second to decide to trust. Right. But volume, what they're talking about is the kind of trust that's measured in volume. Yeah. And so literally I can have this big container that I have, I've had, you know, with friends or whomever over time, and it be at the same height as that Uber driver, but it doesn't have the same, the same volume to it. It doesn't have the same kind. And when the trust flywheel gets going with those people, the velocity because of that volume is much greater. Yeah. And then the third way is context. Hmm. And context is the weight. How weighty is this situation? Interesting. Yeah. And so it's, you never, of course, all this heady stuff, you never want to go into your team and just kind of puke all over them, this kind of thing. But right. to be aware of what is the height, what's the volume that they have with each other, what's the context, how weighty is this situation? Yeah. And in that, now we can discover why people feel unsafe. Because distrust is all about unsafe. Right, what right. about what I just said or you just experienced in me or whatever? What about that made you feel unsafe about yourself? Yeah. Now, that's really key because yeah. many people will say, well, I felt unsafe for so-and-so over here or I feel unsafe for our project or I, you know, I feel like, you know, you're going to sabotage the company, whatever that is. Right. That's not really at the core. What's at the core is. What did your amygdala pick up that made you feel unsafe about right. yeah. you? Yeah. In those things, now, when, when you start to see, and it, it takes practice, of course, but you start to see people's core tendencies of why they feel unsafe. So, right. for instance, I'm an Enneagram 8 wing 7. So, you know, I'm a force of nature, right? You're, yeah, you're, you're, a strong, you're a strong presence. Let's just put yeah, it down. Exactly. Yeah. And you are, by the way. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my Clifton strengths, I have strategic, futuristic, maximizer, achiever, and activator. So, I mean, it's just, it's hell on wheels when I, right. you know, when I right. let go. And I distrust people who don't move. Yeah. Because I feel unsafe when I stay still. Yeah. Yep. I just, I, I'm like, we got to move. We got to do something. We got to get out of here. We got to, right. you know, because I'm so futuristic. I'm so strategic. I'm, 
I'm about activation and maximizing every moment. And so right. when all that kind of combines and someone in just in my face is like, you know, I think we should take a moment and evaluate the risk of this project. Right. No. And you, you're saying, I don't trust you now. I don't, I don't trust you. You're trying to stop me from doing right. good. Right. right? <laughs> and you can see those play out within yeah, personality. Because we all have these key fears. Right. Of what people are trying to stop us from. Right. Now, because of that, when you start to see those things, now I can start helping people become more transparent about what they're fearing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that transparency, again, just calms the barking dog. It doesn't build trust. No. Right. Right. So I have to quickly then move to things like collaboration. Right. I have to bring risk into the room and have everybody play with that risk to start building trust within that. I don't eliminate risk. I bring it to the room and make it front and center so that people can together then develop a sense of trust. So um, it's interesting to, you mentioned both Clifton Strength Finder and Enneagram, which are in many ways your innate patterns. I'm an Enneagram seven. I, I totally get it. <laughs> so, so you can you can charge into the room and I'll come behind and set the party up. Uh, you know, but there's this there's a certain innate pattern in all of us, and it, it, I'm I'm guessing it relates to what we trust and don't trust based on on the way you've sort of framed it. So if we trust and distrust different things, almost at the level of personality or at our deep innate sense, how then do we create a sense of belonging? I guess what I'm asking is, how do we create community and belonging when even our very ideas of trust are so personal to us? Hmm. <laughs> That's a really good question. I, do you think you can, can say it in a different way? Sure. So I'm an Enneagram 7. I want to have a party. And I don't trust you because you didn't put the lampshade on your head, right? You're an Enneagram 8 and you're wondering why I'm still, you know, in the hotel room when you're out on the street doing the thing you're going to do, whatever that is. And so somehow if you and I are collaborating, we've got to find a way to trust each other. And yet what we value at our core level might be different. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is a framework, and you cover this in your book, but a framework for like, how do we take that individual sense of self-trust and create collaboration and community and belonging when what we trust and distrust is in many ways personal to us. And it's also personal to our experience, I should say. I think that's another important thing. You know, in my coaching work, I, I, I deal with some individuals who have come through trauma. And so what they've learned that there is a certain learned behavior of trust and distrust. And I'm wondering how, like, what are the practices that bring communities together in mutuality of trust? I, I, I know what you're, you're asking, and I'm just trying to get at it in a simple, you know, a simple way sure, that's yeah. practical and applicable. So I, I think that, for, for instance, the, and I keep going back to collaboration, there's, there's many other tools, relate, and they're all relational tools. So any time that you... Um, are doing something creating to create a relationship between either people or things or a relationship between a product and a human, what, yeah. whatever that relationship that you're trying to build, 
the hardest thing to do because you're you're so concerned that the guard dog is going to come out and and one of those people or both is to introduce risk. Yeah. And yet that's the, that is the key thing to relationship is the risk. And so it, it's introducing risk in such a way that allows their guide dog to guide them through that risk. So for instance, what you mentioned about putting a lampshade on your head, I am not um, game kind of person. Right. <laughs> I, Most Enneagram eights aren't. So, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And it's usually because I know I'm not going to win. And right. <laughs> um, so I have this really hard problem when people introduce little games and, you know, when it comes to either corporate meetings or even right. family gatherings, it just right. drives me crazy. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to play. But if someone can somehow connect it to me having fun, which I have fun in doing other things besides game. Yeah, yeah. So it's using those bridging tech techniques that yeah. bridge what I feel is safe to what they're going to do. So Rachel Botsman again, she she says it this way. She said there's there's unfamiliar. And there's familiar, but there's something in between called strangely familiar. Huh. Yeah. Anytime that you can introduce a, a, a concept and it make it strangely familiar, people will lean in and be more likely to take the risk and trust. So, for, for instance, you know, um, I was traveling and we were eating. I don't remember what may have been some rodent. And I asked my host, you know, what is it? And all they would say is it tastes like chicken. Tastes (laughs) like chicken. Well, why is that? Strangely familiar. Strangely familiar. I kind of know what chicken, you know, might taste like and in the texture and all those things that, that come with it. So, okay, I'll try it. And I did try it. So it's, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like, how can we introduce the strangely familiar thing yeah. to the risk we're going to ask them to take? Yeah, I love that. I really, really love that. that and that's pretty helpful. Thank you. I didn't mean to, to problematize it, but I think that's oh, no. where that's really kind of where the rubber meets the road. I want to go big. I want to go really big now because, you know, if we were to list the great problems we're facing in this world, we could list environmentalism, environmental concerns and financial concerns and all that. But it seems to me that underlying all that, maybe one of the most core concerns and one of the most troubling concerns is just a lack of trust and, a, and a, just a, a deep tribal distrust. And, and we see, those of us that live in the US see it, but but frankly, I've got friends in, in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe and different parts who are, this is like... The, 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 the plague of distrust is tearing us apart. And I'm wondering if you can reflect on that and kind of like, why is that? I mean, I know you're not a cultural historian or, or an historian for that matter, but I'd love as a, as an expert on trust, I'd love for you to sort of reflect on this world and how we got to such a place of distrust and kind of how we might think about moving forward. Yeah. It's, you know, when you and I grew, in fact, when I, when I, the, a little funny story about the book. So my developmental editor, I mentioned in the book that Walter Cronkite 
was once known as the most trusted man in America. Yeah. He yeah. was named that in, I don't remember, Time sure. or something. Like I think it was Time Magazine. Yeah. 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 And she said, no one's going to know who that is. I'm like, <laughs> what? She Might goes, I don't know who that is. I'm like, you don't know who Walter Cronkite is? <laughs> What's the world come to? Right. But when we have moved out of this kind of Cronkiteized reporting system, right, into, you know, we, we've gone from news cycles to fear cycles. Yeah. Yeah. And when we do that, when, 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 because our amygdala literally has the power to shut down our prefrontal cortex. Right. Right. As soon as it gets, if it gets hijacked, you can forget people reasoning through their next idea. Literally. It just, it will not happen. So if I can keep your amygdala hijacked and fed, if you feed a barking dog, it's going to keep barking. Going to keep barking for sure. Yeah. And so I just think that we have, as humans, we have a responsibility to start feeding our amygdala another diet. I love that. That is profound. We need to feed our amygdala a better diet. Yeah, because in my research on flow, you're right. You know, flow happens in the prefrontal cortex. And so our ability to uh, to be heads down, creative, getting stuff done has to do with the lack of judgment fed to us by those fear centers. And so, yeah, you're right. Tell our, tell our amygdala better stories in essence. Yes, exactly. And I love it, that. And not just better stories, a, a healthy diet of different stories. So yeah. that it, it's, they may not feel better and our barking dog might hate them, literally right. hate them, but yeah. it, it helps us socialize that barking dog so that it becomes a better guide dog. I love and that. And you just have to get the, we, and I'm not blaming the media at all. I mean, all they're doing is giving what we pay for. Right. It's our responsibility as humans to feed on a much better diet. And, and so, it, you know, when you see news cycles go to fear cycles, that's just a reflection of humanity. And if, 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 for instance, if humanity desired new cycles, that's what we would have. Right. But if I can keep your amygdala hijacked, you're not going to do any reasoning. The other kind of systemic thing is our political system. So politicians use this and have started using this literally since kind of the, well, a little bit before this, but mostly when when politics hit TV with the JFK yeah. days and the Nixon days, yeah. Yeah. When, when that started to happen and we saw that we could have a better influence on people's voting habits through keeping them hijacked than yeah. giving them intelligent reason. Right. Because if I can, I can hijack you really, really quickly without you even knowing it. Right. And if I can do that, then what we're going to do is we're going to do that so that I get elected. And then to keep me elected and to keep me in power, I'm going to continually feed that barking dog so that I can behind the scenes do the logical things. Yeah. Yeah. That is really powerful. 
I want to end with two things. So I'm going to ask you sort of another big picture question, and then I want people to tell how they can uh, find you, how they can get the book, how they can connect with you. So there's a question I've been playing around with lately. And when I have guests on that have bigger ideas, I, I love this to ask this question, which is, I want you to imagine that, that your book on trust. So it becomes, uh, you know, trust me becomes required reading for heads of state. It gets passed out at Davos. It, it's, it's featured on every, you know, every news show that, that it could be featured on. And people read it and they really internalize the message in uh, trust me. How would the world look different in 15 to 20 years? Wow. Well, from your lips, may it be so. The, <laughs> there's no way I would say it would look like the 50s, or it would look like the roaring 20s, or it would look like any other time in history. Yeah. What I would say is that it would, I think the strongest I could say was it would feel like a piece of heaven. Mm. Because we feel distrust and we decide to trust, we have to deal with how people are feeling first. Right. And if we could all take a deep breath, you know, a collective breath, and everybody wants to, anybody you talk to, <laughs> it's what they want to do. It doesn't right. matter if they agree with me politically or not, or, or with whatever I'm doing or not. Right. But they all, we all agree when we go home, we're just like, I wish everyone would just take a breath. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's what it would feel like. It would feel like a big inhale and exhale. I love that. I love that. So hopefully by now people are clamoring for uh, your book and they want to learn more about you. How do they do that? Um, well, the book is available on Amazon and uh, it's, happily there resting for people to take it off the shelf. And then you can reach me at Joseph R. Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. So josephrmyers.com. And of course, you know, your, your usual, well, probably not these days usual, but old man usual Facebook and LinkedIn. There's a, there's a comment after my own heart. And all of that information, by the way, for those listening, will be in the show notes. So you can you'll figure out how to get a hold of Joseph through that. This was great, man. This was a lot of fun. I'm so excited to share your this interview and your book and what you're doing with, with the world and with the entrepreneurs and people listening to this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for your presence and for the work you're doing. Thank you, Will. It's been such fun. Awesome.